You may be seated. Does everybody have an outline? If not, uh, hold your hand up. And the guys that have the extras will make sure that, uh, that you get a copy. We're going to, uh, to have some, some thoughts tonight that come out of the first chapter of the earliest gospel we have, the gospel of Mark, chapter 1. We're just going to be looking at the first eight verses tonight. And let's begin with a word of prayer. It dawns on us every time that we read about the life of Jesus that the, the path that you have chosen for us to live as disciples and to be conformed to the image of Jesus is a difficult path. But we're thankful that the more we reflect on these ancient sacred words, Father, the more encouraged and the more galvanized our spirit is to choose that path, not just for the, the, the wisdom of it, but for the blessing of it, Father. And not just in this life, even though that is profound blessing, but the blessing that is eternal. Father, make us whole and help us to be healthy. And we pray for discernment and we pray for wisdom and we pray for strength of character. And we pray, Father, not to be tilted in our thinking or tilted in, the, in, in our view of life by the different things that take place in our culture that, that buffer our mind and our heart every day. But we pray, Father, that, that like Jesus, our eyes will be set on that which is before us. And without wavering, Father, to, to continue that, that path all the days of our life, knowing that when we stumble, we stand back up. When we fall, we dust ourselves off. But with the help of our companions and our brothers and sisters in faith, we will, Father, make our way along this path to You. Thank You, Father, again for these words. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, the Gospel of Mark is, uh, I, I think the first written account that we have of the life of Jesus. It is, uh, uh, it is a written account, but that is not the way that the gospel was originally preached. It was, uh, it was an oral account. It was an oral sermon. It was the, 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 the traditions that were passed on from the apostles that had been transmitted orally that began to be written down. And there were these eyewitnesses to the life that Jesus lived. In fact, Paul refers to him in 1 Corinthians 15. He talks about the, uh, he refers to the eyewitnesses of the, of the apostles to the resurrection of Jesus and how Jesus appeared to 500 and even later on to Paul. And there was uh, a, a need as these eyewitnesses began to disappear and began to, to leave the, the landscape, there was a need for these truths about Jesus' life to be written down. And this was done in an in order to preserve the real Jesus. Uh, this was done to present what Jesus really said and to present what Jesus really did in order to keep people from, number one, making up things about Jesus that were never true. Thus, you know, again, kind of uh, uh, stilting a little bit what it was that Jesus really did. But most importantly, it was, it was written down in order for Jesus to change us and to transform us and to impact us. 
if we make Jesus up, and we make Jesus up according to what we want Him to look like, make Him up according to our own imagination, that Jesus is really not going to have the power to transform us. And the reason for that is that Jesus is not going to challenge us. And that Jesus is not ever going to contradict us in our thinking or in our ethic or in our behavior or our value system. And the reason for that is because that Jesus is really made in our own image. But the real Jesus that is presented in those four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that real Jesus is the one who literally changes and converts you. And that's how Mark starts this Gospel off. Jesus is, in chapter 1 and verse 1, the Christ, which means that He is the Messiah. He is the King. He is the Anointed One. He is the one who has the authority to rule your life. And not only is He the King, but number 2 in that same verse, He is the Son of God. And what Mark does at that point is to go immediately to Isaiah chapter 40 to make that point. Now, what he does in going to Isaiah chapter 40 is to take this passage that had been on Israel's heart and on Israel's mind for many a century. Israel was looking forward to the day, according to Isaiah 40, that God Himself would show up and would come Himself into Jerusalem. And what Mark does is to identify that messenger at the very beginning of Isaiah chapter 40. That messenger is John the Baptist, and he identifies the Lord in that passage out of Isaiah 40, as Jesus Himself. Now what is really, uh, I, I think, stupendous about this verse is that the word Lord in Isaiah 40 is literally, we don't translate it this way in the English, what we have is the word Lord with all of those capital letters. Which means, for those of us that have read the introduction to our Bibles, is that when we find the word Lord with all of those capital letters, what it means is that that is the covenant name of God. What Isaiah is saying is that Yahweh Himself, the covenant God, the Creator God, the sovereign God that is throughout the pages of the Bible revealed as the God who is seeking relationship with us, that God is coming to Israel. The name of God that was revealed to, to, to Moses. The name that was so holy that it was never pronounced by the Jews, Mark is saying that is the God who has come to Jerusalem and His name is Jesus. Now, that is a bombshell. I, you know, it's the end of philosophy for one thing. You know, when you struggle in, in the areas of philosophy, it's always about the ideal versus the real. And all of a sudden you have the ideal becoming real in Jesus. But, but be, beyond that, what you have is this. The, the truth of Jesus is coming can and will change the core of your heart. You will be changed. Now we all have a basic motivational drive that gets us out of bed every morning and into the world each day. And those motivations are varied. But for most of the people in the world today, the most basic drive, the most basic motivational drive is fear. The fear of not surviving, the fear of missing out on something, the, the, the fear of not living up to expectations or living up to some standard, the fear of not proving ourselves. And when you take that motivation that is basic in the heart of most people in the world and you line it up with the religions of the world, what you find is that the religions of the world just irritate that fear because God, according to those religions of the world, God is up there and He's out there someplace. And you have to work really, really hard to get to where He is. In, Bo in Buddhism, you have the eightfold life. In Islam, you have the five pillars. In Judaism, you have the Ten Commandments. And all of that 
in those world religions just increase that fear of trying to get to the God that is out there and up there that demands work and, 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 the, and the, the strict obedience to be able to find it. But Mark is saying something different. He is saying that this incarnation is special. The incarnation means that, that God has come to us. And it is therefore possible to have a heart that knows it has God. And that heart that is certain and confident and assured that it has God and God has it will want to live in gratitude. Gratitude that we have Him and we won't want to miss out on Him. And He comes to us because He knows that we could never make it to Him. And therefore, the, the core of your heart changes from fear to joy and to gratitude. But then the second thing is this. The truth of His coming becomes a resource for suffering. I mean, think about it this way. You're, you're suffering some grievous loss. There's something that's happened in this life that has just rattled your cage and has shaken the way that you think about life and think about yourself or think about some significant relationship or the, the values that you have. All of that has been shaken. And there's somebody that you sit down next to and you pour out your life and that listener you know, does a pretty good job of listening to what you have to say. But their only advice, the only response that they have is, you know, if you do this and this and this and that, then maybe you'll sort of come out of that suffering and come out of that grief in a way that allow you to get on with your life. But if you pour out your life of suffering and you pour out your experience of grief, and that person who is listening to you says, I know what you mean. I know what you mean because I've been there too. I know what you mean because I've been through that kind of suffering too. And then you learn about their suffering. And then they tell you that they are going to go through your suffering with you. Then that has really helped you. Now that is one of the gigantic galactic differences between Christianity and other religions. Uh, there's this poem by, by Edward Shilto that, uh, that kind of addresses this. Uh, Edward writes, We know today what wounds are. Have no fear. Show us thy scars. We know the countersign. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. What Mark is doing is taking the truth of the incarnation and rooting it into the hope of Israel that the King of the universe would one day come. Which leads us to this whole idea of, of meeting Him in the wilderness. The word that, that describes where John the Baptist is preaching is, is the word wilderness in a lot of translations. And it's a word that's okay because it has that, that little subword in there, wild, which kind of carries the idea of what, what Mark is trying to get across. But when we think of wilderness typically in North America, it, it means forest. It means rolling hills. It means hill country. And when we think of the forest and streams and the hill country and, and, and trees and, and, and foliage, what we think is a place where there's not a whole lot of humans, but it's still teeming with life. It's a place where you can hunt. It's a place where you can fish. It's a place where life can be sustained. But that's not the idea that Mark is, is trying to get across with this word wilderness, solitary place that he uses in the first chapter. That's not the idea. The biblical idea is more of a deserted place. 
a place where things have to struggle to, to survive. Uh, many years ago, probably uh, close to 30 years ago, I remember camping out near the Amistad Reservoir, uh, out not far from the, uh, from the Devil's River out in West Texas. And um, I remember thinking, you know, what, what, what kind of thing is it that can survive in a land like this? And the, the old fellow that, that we were camping with said, well, I'll tell you what kind of thing survives out here. The kind of thing that will bite you. And if it doesn't bite you, it will sting you. And if it doesn't sting you, it will stick you. That is the kind of desert I think that, that, that Mark is trying to get across here. It is a place where there are thorns. It is a place where there is thirst. And it is a place of, of loneliness. It is not the typical kind of place where life grows and where community uh, flourishes. It's not the kind of place where you naturally think of living your life and being nurtured and nourished in such a way that you flourish. But here's the thing theologically. Theologically, we meet God in the wilderness. We meet God in the wilderness. Let me ask you a question. Where did Moses meet God at the burning bush? In the wilderness, the desert of Midian. And where did Israel meet God? Well, I mean, you, you know, the first answer that comes to our minds is the Exodus in Egypt. But that's where they were sort of introduced to God. But where they really met God was at Mount Sinai. Out in that rugged, stark, lonely, hard place where it was fearful because of the, the fire and the smoke and the clouds and the shaking of the mountain. And it was in this deserted place. And that's where they became the people of God in principle. But after 40 years of wandering around in the desert, they became the people of God in practice, learning to depend on Him in that wilderness, in that lonely, thirsty, hungry place. They understood what it meant to trust God on a daily basis for that water and for that manna. Now, why, why is this so, that theologically we meet God in the wilderness? Well, number two, the wilderness is the place where we learn this fact. It is the place where only God sustains life. You have to trust God. It's God who has to bring the water out of a rock. The desert is the place where you can't grow wheat. And if you have bread for very long that's not eaten, it gets moldy and it gets stale and it gets sort of useless. And it's the place where the manna has to come into play every day of your life if you're going to survive. But it's in that wilderness, and, and you think about it in terms of Israel's experience of 40 years in the wilderness. What they are learning that they did not learn in Exodus 13 is, and, and what they were being prepared for as they were entering from the east side of the Jordan River into, as Joshua has, has taught us over the last several months, as they were entering into that promised land, what they were learning in that desert wandering is that God is not an add-on to life. That the relationship with God is really not like a, a vitamin supplement to your well-being. What they were learning every day in that wilderness, in that place of thorns, in that place of thirst, in that place of hunger, in that place of loneliness, is that without God, there's only, there's only lostness. Without that God, in that desert, in that wilderness, there is no survival. 
And isn't that what the writer of the Hebrew letter is really trying to get across to us when we read you know, with some sensitivity what it is that he's struggling with with those people in the first century that, that, that have entered into kind of a theological wilderness where being a Christian or, 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 or being a follower of Yahweh is not an easy thing. And, and the writer of Hebrews really helps us to understand what that wilderness is on the inside of us. That wilderness is that place where the thing that you think gives you hope or gives you life or saves your life or that thing that gives you significant, it runs out. It's that, that place where what we're looking for fails us or evades us. That's what the wilderness is. And what that Hebrew writer is trying to get across to his readers is that everything else in this life will fail you. Think about your forefathers and their struggles. How different is your struggle from that? And it's only Jesus. It's only Jesus who can show you the way, who can sustain your life, who can be the pioneer that blazes that path through that wilderness. That it's only Christ that can make that kind of difference in your life that even in a time like this, where it feels like even though you're in a large city of the Roman Empire, it's like you're in a wilderness. Only God can sustain you. You know, it's in that wilderness. That's where we're forced to face God. Because in that kind of wilderness, every well has gone dry. Every piece of bread that we have depended on to give us significance, to sustain our life, to give us our strength, all of that has gone moldy and dry. And it's only in the wilderness do you realize that except for God's mercy, you're dead. And John the Baptist makes that perfectly clear. He says, this John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness and he's preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem, they went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. And this was his message. After me comes one who is more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. You know, um, one of the things that we don't talk a lot about when we come to this passage because we're so busy trying to identify what John's baptism was really for is that for the first time in the history that I know of, in the history of, 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 of baptism, in the history of the world, for the first time in history you have someone else baptizing you. You go to Israel today, you go to the southern end of the Temple Mound where they've discovered on those steps leading up to the Holy Gates that take you up to the platform of the, of the Temple Mound itself, they find all of these mikvah baths. They were, they were these little rooms with water in it where you would strip down, you would go in yourself and you would baptize yourself. Baptism was not a big deal to the first century Jews. It was not a big deal to, to, to the Gentiles who had leanings in the direction of God and had experienced you know, what it meant to be uh, proselytized into the Jewish faith. Baptism was not a big thing. But for the first time in history, you're not doing it yourself. You're not doing it yourself. Somebody else is baptizing you and cleansing you with that water. Meaning that to receive that kind of fitness, to be able to enter into the kingdom of God, had to be by the hand of another. Which brings us uh, sort of to the end of this passage. 
where we, we find this reference in the ancient, and, and I think everybody in the ancient world, when they, when they read Isaiah chapter 40, they, they knew what was being talked about. In the ancient world, they, they would have recognized the language of Isaiah 40 that Mark uses in, in chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. You know, most of the roads were crooked. I've walked a lot of those roads, a lot of those paths in Israel, and I mean, they don't go through mountains, they go around them. They go around big rocks. They go up and they go down, they go around. They're crooked. If you go down crooked, you're going to come up crooked. Except for those that the king would use to go into a city. And that's where valleys are raised up and, and, and mountains are dropped down. And roads are made straight because the king's coming. And the way that you honored the king and the way that you revered the king was not to make him go up and down and go all the way out of his way around rocks and around mountains and through ravines and through dangerous places and through narrow spots, but you made the road large and wide for him to be able to come into your place of living. And in Mark's Gospel, one of the ironic things about that road is that in Mark's Gospel, the road that Jesus is on most of the time is a road that is leading to the place where He's going to die on a cross. Jesus is not coming to a throne. He's coming to a cross that He is going to be nailed to after He has been just about massacred with lashes and with mocking and torture and lies. And the greatness of Jesus in Mark's Gospel, the reason He writes this Gospel is because the Gospel, the Jesus that is real, the Jesus that truly came, that is not made up, that is not contrived out of somebody's imagination, but the truth, the inspired truth of Jesus' life. When we understand that life and that life gets inside of us, is the story of the life of a man who changes your heart. Think it, of it this way. Jesus suffers everything in the wilderness for us. He gets the thorns, does He not, of the wilderness? They're placed on top of His head and, and, and plated into a crown and pressed to the blood flows out of His head. It's a place of thirst in a place of loneliness because He has been forsaken by everyone. And the point that Mark is trying to make in these first eight verses is that Jesus goes into the ultimate wilderness to lose God in order for us to go into our little wilderness to find God. He takes the punishment we deserve so that we might have relationship with Him. He is the King who is not oppressive. You know, you think about those ancient roads. I mean, when those roads were having to be built for some kind of an earthly or human king that was coming into town, or some, some enemy king that had conquered your army, and that king is coming to your city, it meant that people had to be enslaved in order for that king to come into the place where you live. But not so with Jesus. He is not the king who is oppressive. But He is the king that changes the core motivation of your heart. And He takes away that fear of being in the wilderness and replaces it with joy and gratitude because your sins have been forgiven. Because you have been drawn near to God and God has drawn near to you. He is, he is the one who takes that fear away and replaces it with peace. The question is, 
How are you going to respond to Him? Knowing how He has responded to your wilderness. Ben's going to lead us in a song. And uh, some of our shepherds are going to be up here at the front. And maybe tonight is the night that you've been thinking that it's time for, for me to really do business truthfully and honestly with the wilderness that I, I, that's inside of me, that, I, that I'm struggling with. And it may be that you understand that for the first time in your life there's an opportunity for you to come out of, out of that, that guilt and to come out of that, that stress and that anxiety and that, 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 that oppressive memory of, 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 of the terrible things that have brought pain into your own life and brought pain into the lives of other people. Or maybe you just see the world as this gigantic wilderness that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. How do you deal with the grief? And how do you deal with the suffering? And how do you deal with the setbacks and, and, and the tiredness that comes from trying to hang on in a place like this where it seems like it's storm after storm after storm after storm. It's, it's struggle after struggle after struggle after struggle. And sometimes it just feels like you're overwhelmed. How do you deal with that? The answer is Jesus has taken that wilderness on for you. So that even in this big, what seems like a big wilderness to us, a little wilderness in, in the, the, the cosmic realm, we can find God. And it's, and it's through another that we find that fitness to come into His kingdom because our sins have been forgiven through His sacrifice. And through our faith, and through our repentance, and through our confession, and through our obedience, to His Word and to His commands, we find the core motivation of our heart being changed. We don't fear every day. We don't get up with the core motivation of our heart being fear that we might not make it, that we might, we might miss out on something, we might not prove ourselves. But every morning, regardless of what we face, there can be that inexpressible joy that Peter talks about, that peace that passes understanding that Paul talks about because of Jesus because of the Christ, because of the Son of God, the man in the wilderness. If that describes you tonight, our shepherds are going to be down here at the front. Come down and talk to them about the needs of your heart as we stand and praise God together. There's a fountain free, tis for you and me. Let us say so.